Hey Future Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. And I'm Andy. And we are the hosts of Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Each week, we'll dive into some of the most unnerving crimes that this unnatural world has to offer. Listen for Unnatural on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. everybody, I'm Dee Dee West. And I'm Summer. And this is Broken Limelight. So today we're going to finish talking about the Gianni Versace story and the story of Andrew Cunanan and um, his killing spree, which I think you guys saw that coming, right? Oh, unfortunately. And side note, I call him Andrew Punani in my head. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we left off on part one with Andrew giving away his possessions and booking a one-way flight to Minneapolis to visit his friends Jeff Trail and David Madsen, who he was in love with. And he was telling his friends that he had some unfinished business with his friend, Jeff Trail. At this point, Andrew was in a lot of debt. He had no sugar daddy and no friends. And he was addicted to crystal meth and gaining a lot of weight and just looking kind of scruffy. So he just didn't have the same appeal that he did before. He wasn't able to like so easily wrap people around his finger. And he just pretty much didn't have anybody. And nobody really, really believed him anymore. So he was just feeling this sense of rejection that was literally making him crumble at this point. So he goes to Minneapolis and neither Jeff nor David wanted him around, but they couldn't bring themselves to tell him. David was really uncomfortable and also pretty distraught because his old stalker, Greg Nelson, had resurfaced. David was in a coffee shop one day when he looked up and he saw his stalker staring at him through the window. And a few days later, he found his Jeep dented and scratched across the side. So David was just like uneasy altogether. You know, he he didn't want to deal with Andrew right now. Andrew's plan was first to get back together with David. And if that didn't work out, Jeff would become the object of his desire. Jeff talked to his sister about his concerns with Andrew. And she was like, look, like you have a new boyfriend now. So you have to just tell him you owe it to him. So Jeff had this talk with Andrew and Andrew was not happy to hear that. Shortly after that, Jeff called up his friend Mike and told him that he and Andrew had a huge falling out and that he never intended to speak to him again. But by the end of April, Jeff had relented and it was decided that Andrew was going to go stay with both David and Jeff on the weekend of April 25th. (laughs) Jeff, though, made plans to be out of town that weekend. And he was like, I'm just going to leave you a key under the mat. Like he didn't want anything to do with it. He probably just couldn't get out of it. Like Andrew talked him into it because it it, it seemed like he it wasn't easy to relent. You know, like all this time he's telling people, no, he's like a brother. Like you just kind of put up with him. And now. He told somebody that they had a huge falling out and he was never going to speak to him again. Like it had to be pretty, pretty big for that to happen. Yeah. Another thing that might be important, Jeff had borrowed a lot of money from Andrew. Um, Andrew was kind of getting both David and Jeff addicted to the same kind of lifestyle as him. So like they would like to buy like electronics and new toys and like Jeff ended up in a lot of debt. So he ended up having to borrow like like a couple thousand dollars from Andrew. Oh, wow. So the fact that Andrew had lent Jeff some money might be the reason that Jeff wasn't ready to cut ties with him. Like maybe he felt like he he owed him something. Right. Like he was obligated to stay friends with him because of everything he's done. Exactly. And maybe he still owed him money, too. Yeah, that's true. He didn't. He's like a good guy. So he doesn't want to cut ties without paying him. 
But Andrew started pressuring Jeff to sell drugs like steroids for him. It's conceivable that maybe Andrew's reasoning for coming to see Jeff was to collect money that he owed him or to offer the steroids as a way to pay him back. Huh. Yeah, because steroids weren't the kind of drug that Andrew used. Obviously, he was lazy as shit. He didn't like to uh, work out. But he knew that like Jeff, for example, knew military people and stuff like that, that maybe they would be able to sell it in the Midwest for him. Right. It was becoming clear to Andrew, however, that David and Jeff were less and less willing to like allow him to extend his stays like he had always done. He was like clearly being rejected by these two guys who he had like in his mind, he had lavished all this time and attention and like thousands of dollars on both of these guys. So he felt that he had been used and tossed away, leaving him alone, insecure, depressed and overweight. And it was all their fault. Oh, no, it has nothing to do with the fact that you're just a piece of shit. That he scares the crap out of them and they owe him nothing. Right, exactly. (laughs) So Andrew packed up a duffel bag, including handcuffs, pornographic videos, and five glass vials of illegal steroids, most likely for selling, or it might have even been like a love offering for David because he did like to work out as well. On Friday morning, Andrew got a ride to the airport from a friend named Ken Higgins. On the way there, Andrew went on and on about how much he hated Gianni Versace. He was deeply jealous and resentful of the rich and famous Italian designer who supposedly came from nothing and who through hard work became an international celebrity and gay icon. Yeah, well, he he worked. That's the key here, Andrew. And I think that's what made him so angry. He's like, it's just not possible for me. He's like, I've tried doing nothing. And I just. (laughs) Andrew arrived in Minneapolis around 520 p.m. David picked him up and took him to a dinner with some of his friends. And the friends noticed that David seemed to be like kind of uneasy, but he said everything was fine. On Saturday night, they went to dinner and then they hit up some bars and they ended up splitting up. And Andrew uh, apparently spent the night at Jeff's apartment, but nobody knows for sure. The whole thing about this weekend is that there are no living witnesses. So a lot of the timeline is kind of pieced together by the evidence. And like, you'll see what I mean. But it's going to be a lot of they believe this is what it looks like. You know, we can't know for sure. Yeah, I really hate this. (laughs) Poor guys. So remember, this was Saturday night when I said that um, David and and Andrew split up and Andrew went to Jeff's house to stay the night, supposedly. Mm -hmm. So so the next morning around 10 a.m., Andrew was at Jeff's house when a friend called for Jeff to tell him about a softball game that afternoon. Apparently, Jeff liked to attend these games and just like watch them. So Andrew, we know that he was there because he picked up the phone and took the message and jotted down a note for Jeff. And he signed it. Love, Andrew. He also made some long distance calls from Jeff's home, including a call to to Norman Blanchford to say goodbye. Remember, Norman was his sugar daddy. Mm Kind of like disinherited him. He said goodbye for what? Right. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, Andrew told him he realized their relationship was over and he was like, I'm moving from, I'm moving to San Francisco. I'll I'll stay in touch. And Norman was puzzled. He was like, I already knew you were moving, but okay. That morning, Jeff drove his boyfriend, John, to his job, which was at the Mall of America. On the way, he told John that he had something important to talk to Andrew about, but he didn't elaborate any further than that. And then Jeff did go ahead and go to Jerry's softball game where he told a friend that he was going to go home early to bake a cake for his boyfriend, John's birthday. Isn't that so sweet? He was like, I got to go bake a cake for my boyfriend. (laughs) Jeff went back to his apartment around three o'clock in the afternoon, but he didn't see Andrew. 
At about 5.30 in the afternoon, Andrew was seen getting into the elevator at David's apartment. He was by himself and he got off on David's floor and he did not want to stop and make small talk, which was unusual for Andrew. Mm -hmm. Jeff's boyfriend, John, went home from work and took a nap. And at 8 p.m., Andrew called and left a voicemail saying, give me a call. I'd like to see you. Jeff immediately called back, but he told John that he was going to he was willing to blow him off so that they could go see a moving or something. But John was like, no, I want to go dancing. It's my birthday. So go handle that and I'll see you later tonight. So Jeff told John that he would meet him in between 10 and 1030 at a club called the Gay 90s. Unfortunately, Jeff wouldn't make it. Oh, no. Around 9 p.m., Jeff got in his 1996 Honda Civic to meet Andrew in a coffee shop. It's really unclear what important thing Jeff needed to see Andrew about because he never he never said exactly what it was. Plus, he was uh, avoiding him really hard and it was his boyfriend's birthday. So it was like, what could possibly be so important? You know, I wonder if it was about the steroids. Maybe he wanted to make money. Maybe. Or maybe he was going to give him money. I don't know. But here's something interesting. We think that Andrew stole Jeff's gun and Jeff was coming back for it. Because right now, as Jeff is like driving over to this coffee shop to meet up with him, Andrew is up in David's apartment. With Jeff's gun. So maybe that's the important thing. He's like, give me my fucking gun back. Yeah. And he probably realizes that he's a little unhinged at this point. Yeah. That, I mean, that could be very well, like why he was so adamant on meeting with him. Exactly. So at 9.08, a phone call was made to David's apartment. We only know this because it was um, on the caller ID and it showed up with the phone number from the coffee shop where Andrew and Jeff were supposed to meet. So it's presumed that Jeff showed up at the coffee shop and then called the apartment to be like, hey, Andrew, I'm here. But then it seems that maybe Andrew told him, no, you come here. Because what happens is at 945, there's a buzz on the loft's intercom entrance, which like it or it didn't have a, a buzzer. So you'd have to actually call from downstairs and wait for somebody to come down and let you in. Mm. Now, David, remember, he had a Dalmatian named Prince. He habitually walked his dog before the 10 o'clock news came on. So David goes out to walk his dog while Andrew's upstairs waiting in his apartment. Now, Jeff was at the coffee shop and now he's heading over to Andrew's apartment. So David's downstairs and he's like, oh, I'll let you in. Oh, do they know that Andrew is upstairs at this point? I mean, does David know? Uh, I'm sure he does because Jeff was probably like, I'm meeting Andrew here. Why else would he be there? You know? Yeah. Um. So David, Jeff, and their dog start, um, they go up the elevator and up to David's apartment. When they got there, Andrew was waiting with a claw hammer in his hand. As soon as they walked in, Andrew struck Jeff with the hammer. The first blow to his skull landed with knockout force. He must have raised his arms to shield himself because he was hit several times on his left wrist in his hand. Then he crumpled to the ground as he was hit with a total of 27 repeated blows to the face, head, and upper torso with both the blunt and the claw side of the hammer. Oh my God. And where was David and the dog? Standing there freaking out. Oh, Jesus Christ. And the thing about the dog is that Andrew had like dog sat for a lot of his friends, especially for them. So the, this dog was very comfortable with him at this point. So it's, it's very possible that the dog didn't even bark or anything because somehow Andrew like calmed it down. Right. I feel like... Don't you think dogs are smart enough to be like, whoa, like this? That's not okay. Um, I don't know. I think if my dog saw me kill somebody, they she would assume that there was a bad guy and they'd be like, I, I got you, mom. That's true. You know, Whew. maybe this dog didn't know Jeff as well, you know? 
Yeah, that's that's the only thing I can think of. Jeff's watch stopped at 9.55 p.m., which helps back up the timing of the attack because it's presumed that it either stopped from one of the blows or from, like, the weight of his body falling on his wrist. Okay, I was like, how, how did that happen? <laughs> well, remember, he was raising his arms to, um, to defend himself, and he broke his wrist and everything. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. One of the blows was actually delivered before the front door had slammed shut, so it actually sent a splatter of blood, like, across the hallway. Oh, wow. There was even pieces of brain matter like lodged into the door, the door frame itself. A neighbor reported to the police that around that time he heard someone shouting, get the fuck out. And then that was followed by a door slam, followed by thumping noises that went on for like 30 to 45 seconds. Then the neighborhood footsteps racing down the hall and water running. He stuck his head out the door, but he didn't see anybody there. So he just like shut his door and went back to his apartment. Andrew knew how to successfully manipulate David, and he essentially told him, I could pin this entire thing on you. Oh, so he didn't kill him right then? Nope. He kept him alive. So David just stood there and watched the entire thing freaking out and like didn't know what to do. Oh, my God. So now Andrew's manipulating him and he's basically telling him, you're going to have to help me. And remember, David really didn't like violence. So like he just froze. And also he had been really skeptical, uh, skeptical about Andrew for a while. So he was kind of like even wondering if this guy had like mob connections, you know? Right. Plus, I mean, he's terrified of him and he just watched him murder somebody right in front of him. Right. And that's the thing. Andrew had like made all of these implications that he was going to have people killed and this and that because they angered him or like fucked with some of his friends or something. So this moment where he's seeing him kill like one of their closest friends, he's probably like, oh, fuck. Yeah, it definitely like solidified it for sure. He didn't have any options, so he had to tread lightly. So the two of them, well, we don't know (laughs) the two of them, either Andrew or David or both of them rolled up Jeff's body in an oriental area rug and they dragged him across the loft and they rested him against the back of the couch. They didn't really try to conceal him or anything. Like as soon as you walked in the front door, you could see the rolled up rug with like his legs sticking out of the top. And then they just threw like a little blanket over him. They used cloths and paper towels to clean up the blood, but they like left a lot of it. They left their sets of bloody footprints. They threw Jeff's watch and his Navy ring along with a bloody hammer and some cloths into a bag. And they just like placed it under the table. Oh, that's really good hiding there, guys. Yeah. And then they left Jeff's pager on his body. And for the next few days, it would just go off repeatedly because his body would just stay in the rug for a few days. Oh, wow. So remember, Jeff's boyfriend, John, was waiting for him at the gay 90s nightclub. He stayed there all night waiting for him. And at like 3 a.m., he went to Jeff's apartment. He went to bed, like wondering where his boyfriend was. And at like eight in the morning, he realized that Jeff wasn't still home. So he was like, "Okay, I'm going to call hospitals and like the jail and everything. So he starts calling everybody. He calls Jeff's work, but like he couldn't reach him. He spent all day Monday trying to reach his friend, Jerry Davis, the one who had played the softball game. But he also didn't respond. So John finally called the police, but they were not interested. They basically told him, you know, you can't file a report until 72 hours. Like if you want, you can call his parents and his parents can file a report. But that's about it. That is such bullshit. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to fight. He didn't want to call his parents because Jeff wasn't out of the closet yet. Right. So like he didn't want to like, oh, gay people don't want to be involved in that. Is that what that was? It's got to be. Yeah. And this was his boyfriend. So what is he supposed to say? Like, hey, he didn't come home last night, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So they basically told him he's a big boy and he can do whatever he wants, like implying that maybe he was just ghosting his boyfriend. David also missed work on Monday, even though he had an important meeting to attend. That afternoon, David's neighbor, Kathleen, came down the elevator of their lofts, and when it opened on the ground floor, she was face-to-face with David and Andrew. Later, she saw what looked like Andrew and David walking Prince, the Dalmatian, on a leash, which was unusual. He wasn't normally leashed. Hmm. I wonder if this was a way of Andrew controlling the dog, too, so that, like, David couldn't tip it off or something. Right, or, like... Or run after it. Yeah, exactly. David's coworker and friend Linda was concerned that David didn't show up for the meeting and nobody was able to reach him. So she and another friend named Laura went to his loft to check on him at about noon or about 12:15. They knocked on the door and they heard the dog pawing and scratching at the door, but nobody ever came and opened it. Linda, who was with David when he found his car, his car all keyed up from the, the, the stalker, she was now really concerned that he might be in trouble because of that. Right. So they called the police and the police didn't want to go into the apartment. They showed up, but they were like, well, if we damage the locks then we're going to have to negotiate payment with David. And if the dog becomes aggressive, we might have to shoot it. Do you want us to shoot the dog? Oh, my God. And they were just like, no, don't shoot the dog. So they were just like, thanks anyway. And they decided to call the superintendent of the building. They told her everything and she knocked on the door. And when nobody answered except the dog, she decided to open the door with her own key. Once they opened the door, they immediately saw the rolled up rug with the body inside of it. They instantly thought that it must have been David. Right. So the police were called again and homicide came out this time. And Sergeant Bob Tichich said, we knew right away it may be a gay thing. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck that means. Yeah, what about a body rolled up in a rug with the legs sticking out says, looks gay to me. They're like, Must it's a lover's gay. gay quarrel. We don't, we don't. Exactly. That's exactly how they handled it. Call Reno 911. Okay. And then they found Andrew's black duffel bag, which had like the steroids and the porn and the handcuffs. And they instantly just assumed that it all belonged to David, who was performing some kind of sex scene. They were just like building off of this stereotype. By now, David and Andrew were actually riding down the highway in David's red Jeep. They would be on the road together for a few days. And again, there are no witnesses to what exactly happened other than like one or two spottings here and there. On Tuesday, April 29th, Jeff's pregnant sister went into premature labor. His buddy, Jerry Davis, was trying to reach Jeff's parents to tell him about Jeff's disappearance, but they weren't able to reach them because their daughter was in labor. So there was just a lot going on. And Jeff's disappearance just kind of went a little bit not unnoticed, but his parents just weren't reachable, you know? They were like they were in the middle of an emergency. Right. By now, Jeff's job was wondering where he had been. John kept trying to call the police who were like, so who are you? Are you his lover? And Jeff is just like, well, yes, but he's still fucking missing after going to hang out with this psychopath. Right. But they were less than helpful. (sighs) So frustrating. I know. On that day, on that day, police released a missing persons notice for Jeff Trail, not knowing that he was actually the body rolled up in the rug. Eventually, they realized that the body in the rug had black hair and David was a blonde, so it couldn't be David in the rug. And therefore, David must be the killer on the run. Sergeant Tichich had, like, no tact whatsoever, and he called up David's parents to find out, like, had you heard from David? And they were, of course, concerned, like, what is going on? What is he up to? And Tichich was like, you know, he's a homosexual, don't you? As if it fucking explained anything. (laughs) 
isn't that such a weird stereotype? Like he's homosexual, so he's dangerous or right, problematic exactly. or something. But I just this must be a killer. Right. It's very frustrating. The body was finally removed from the rug on Wednesday, April 30th, and examined, and they examined it and discovered it to be Jeff's body. Jeff's boyfriend, John, had been relentlessly calling David's house looking for Jeff, and Officer Tichich picked up the phone. And he was like, who are you? And John was like, I'm Jeff's boyfriend. I've been looking for him for days. I called the police multiple times. And Officer Tichich was like, well, that's news to me. Oh, wow. Tichich informed him over the phone that Jeff was dead. His name is so frustrating to say, Tichich. The police were trying to confirm whether the black duffel bag belonged to David or not. So Tichich called up David's friend to try to identify the duffel bag. And when she showed up, she was like, well, did you check the identification tag? And she pulled it open and it had Andrew's name on it. And Tichich was like, yeah, Tichich was like, how embarrassing for me. I guess you didn't have to come all the way down here. I just, I can't, I cannot. He's terrible, isn't he? Oh, there's a tag on there. (laughs) What a detective, you know? (laughs) The fuck? This random ass friend is just like, uh, did you look at this? (laughs) Did you look at the tag? You fucking idiot. (laughs) Anything else you'd like me to do while I'm here? (laughs) It wasn't until Thursday, May 1st, that David's parents were notified that David was missing. At that point, David and Andrew were long gone. Sometime between the Tuesday and the Friday after Jeff Trail's death, somebody reported seeing the red Jeep Cherokee driving north on Interstate 35, but the witness didn't see the driver's face. Remember, this red Jeep belonged to David and Andrew was driving it. Right. On May 3rd, after being missing for six days, David's body was found in tall grass at the edge of Rush Lake by fishermen. Oh, no. And what we don't. Minnesota. Oh, okay. It was still in Minnesota. Um, I want to say it was like 60 miles, 60 miles away from Minneapolis. Okay, hold on a second. So they left the dog in the apartment? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So David was probably also really nervous about that. He's probably real bummed out. Yeah, for sure. Oh. But we don't know when he died. It was sometime between Tuesday and Friday. They initially believed it was Friday, but the autopsy and everything um, determined that it was probably earlier than that. So again, we don't know exactly what happened. We know that David was shot three times through the eye, the head, and the back. Um, The fishermen did note that they thought that he looked surprised, like his eyes were wide open. Like maybe Andrew had like called out his name and he turned around and then he was shot. There weren't many defensive wounds. I think he had like a little mark, like a little bruise on his knuckle. So he was shot through the front and then also the back. So he was shot in the eye, the head and the back. So I'm not sure exactly how it happened. Like maybe he was shot in the back and then he turned around and hit him again Mm -hmm. twice. I I don't know. I feel like that makes the most sense. Yeah. I can't imagine how else it would have happened. Yeah. But I don't know. That's all. That's all that that the report says. He was shot in the eye, the head and the back. And by the way, the shots came from the gun owned by Jeff Trail. Mm. It seems to me that it's most likely that David was killed around Tuesday because on Wednesday there was a parking ticket in the car um, in Chicago. So that Jeep was in Chicago on Wednesday morning. Initially, they believe that maybe he went to Chicago and then came back, but it it doesn't it doesn't add up. 
You know, it's more likely that he killed him before he left the state and they just didn't find him for a few days. On Saturday, May 4th, Andrew would claim another victim in Chicago. This one is really unclear whether this was a random victim of opportunity or if Andrew actually knew this guy or had any motive at all for killing him. So this man was named Lee Miglin. Lee Miglin was a guy that I mentioned briefly in part one. He was a prominent real estate developer and his wife, Marilyn, worked with the Home Shopping Network. Remember, Lincoln Aston briefly worked with the Home Shopping Network also, but we have no idea if there is any connection there. Right. But remember, Lincoln Aston was the one who like we do know that he was friends with Andrew and then Lincoln died and some other guy took the fall for it. But then Andrew somehow ended up with Lincoln's condo. Mm hmm. Very odd. It's all real weird. But again, we 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 just don't know. We don't know. There's nothing more than circumstantial evidence. There's nothing solid. Police found Meglin, who was 72 years old, with his with his throat slashed ear to ear and his feet bound with masking tape. He also had like a plastic bag over his head and then it was like duct taped around his neck. And he had just two little holes, like for his nostrils, which makes it seem like maybe he was being tortured. Right. He had also been tortured with a saw and a screwdriver. His ribs had been broken and he had been beaten and stabbed. And again, his throat had been slashed with a gardener's bone saw. Oh, my God. How did he find him if he if there was no connection? You know, it's just odd. I'll talk about that in a minute. What's interesting is the medical examiner found no defensive wounds on Miglin. Hmm. Also, Lee's body was wearing clothing, but there were no cuts in them, which like he had been stabbed. So Andrew had either lifted up Lee's shirt before stabbing him or maybe Lee wasn't wearing clothing. And then Andrew redressed him after the attack. Hmm. Was this guy a part of the gay community or no, his wife was. I'll get there. (laughs) don't worry all of the it's it's a lot about lee miglin and all of the questions you're asking are the same questions i had (laughs) police also noticed that the suspect who we now know was andrew he had helped himself to a ham in the refrigerator and he just like left it on a desk like no plate or anything just like a whole ham that was half eaten on a desk he also left behind a half eaten apple pie he took a shower no i'm sorry he took a bath because he left a ring around the bathtub he was like grungy And he shaved, leaving all of his hairs in the sink. And they ended up finding this because they were black hairs and Lee Miglin only had white hair. So this made it clear that there was somebody other than Lee in the house. Detectives initially believed that Miglin didn't know his killer or killers, but rather believed it was a crime of opportunity and that Miglin was targeted because he was rich and vulnerable. Miglin's family maintained that the killing was random, but a former FBI agent named Greg McCrary suggests that it's unlikely that Andrew would have bound and tortured Miglin so brutally without any motive right and it's so weird how each person he's killed so far is killed in a different way it really is so in the show american crime story they portray it as if lee is another one of andrew's sugar daddies or like a client of his escort services like there's no physical evidence that andrew or lee miglin ever met like no connection. And Lee's family completely denies that he ever knew Andrew. And these investigators tried really hard to find a connection between them. In fact, it was like 
more drama to the story that like this guy was a closeted gay, but like they couldn't confirm it. They couldn't find anything to like add to that. Now, when you ask Lee Miglin's friends, a lot of them did say like, well, some people were like, well, he's just very neat and maybe a little effeminate. Like he gets, he's always freshly manicured. And others were like, no, it was like a well-known secret that he was, you know, he, he was an underground gay, but again, it's not confirmable. Then again, I think that people like him and like Norman Blanchard and Lincoln Aston, all of these older men, and especially Lee Miglin, he was like a very neat and organized guy. And I just, I think that if he wanted to keep this a secret, he would be very good at it. Right. You know, they exactly. would use all of their connections to keep this quiet and like leave no paper trail, you know? And like Andrew probably knew this too. He probably had his ways around. He was known for being discreet. Like that's why these older guys liked him. It's just odd to me. How would he know exactly where, where was he at, at his house? Yes. Okay. So let me get into that. An initial theory was that Lee Miglin had parked his Lexus in his garage and like walked across the alleyway and maybe was about to open his gate when somebody stuck a loaded gun into his back and ordered him into his other garage. But I'm going to tell you why that doesn't make any sense. So Lee Miglin's house actually had like three parking spaces, like a driveway. He had a garage that was actually not like directly behind his house. It was actually like he had to cross this alleyway and it was like diagonal from his house. It was like a 30 yard walk. And like Lee Miglin kept the green Lexus in that garage, but there's no way that like somebody would have known that. Like, unless you knew the Miglins, you wouldn't know that this garage diagonal from them was theirs and that their car was parked there. And also if some stranger happened upon him in his garage, how would he know which house was his? Like maybe he put a gun to his back, but would, would he really like, this was like in the afternoon in broad daylight, would they really walk 30 yards with a gun to his back and would Lee really be like, okay, let me just show you where it is, you know? Right. So does he live in Minnesota? Chicago. They're in oh, Chicago okay. now. Okay. Mm, I, I don't know. I just feel like that's way too coincidental that he just happened upon this guy who might be a closeted gay who also has connections to somebody that he already knew who was murdered. And the thing with the closeted gay thing is it's hard because like I said, it was a fun story to tell. So like mm -hmm. we don't like, and, and with this case, a lot of people made money off of telling stories uh, like connected to it. And I think everybody really liked the spotlight they got from being attached to it. So it, that's one of the reasons it's so, it's so hard to take anybody's account, you know, and there's right. so many people anyway. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that it was so random. Right. So it is possible that, I mean, the only way this makes sense is if the person knew their way around the house, which wouldn't make sense if this was random. Right. And also how long is this in between them leaving David's apartment to where he's in Chicago. They left David's apartment Monday and this is now Saturday. So in, I mean, say for instance, just like hypothetically, if he were to like be putting out an ad to like find somebody to like have sex with or something like, mm -hmm. how was he just finding this random man? I don't know. It's just, it's odd. And it's a very right. short or this, time or this period. random man, maybe he called an escort service or something that Andrew signed up for this one time. Like, Hey, I'm in Chicago this weekend. You know, we don't know. Um, yeah. It's a lot, but there's more, um, but wait, 
there's also more indicating that Andrew was comfortable in this house, like with the way he just like ate the food and shaved and showered. But that could just be, you know, a fucking psychopath. Maybe he just felt at home because it was a nice big house. (laughs) Yes. But here's the thing. Andrew also like researched his targets, his clients. He wasn't about to go with people who didn't have any money. And how could he be so sure that Lee Miglin's wife wasn't going to come home? Like, did he know that she was out of town that weekend? He took his sweet time taking a shower and, you know, leaving a ham and shit, you know? <laughs> Did he cook the ham, I wonder? <laughs> I think it was a leftover ham. So weird. I, I, you know, I'm no investigator, but. I know, my... I could do like a whole thing on Lee Miglin. Going back to the overkill, um, like why? He was an old man and he just like broke his bones and stabbed them a bunch of times and like wrapped up his head. Like why the escalation here? You know, why, why was it so brutal with Jeff? And then it slow, it de-escalated with David and then it escalated with this old man. So I think he was pissed at Jeff for something. I think David was like, um, it was for lateral damage. Yeah. yeah. Because he shot him. There was no like defensive wounds for this guy. It seems like his sexual acts may have been progressing. Boom. Okay. So that's a couple of things. One thing is, and I just read this from, um, (laughs) I just heard this on Criminal Minds, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that like sexual sadists, sometimes that's why they stab and that's why they stab over and over and over again. It's like a form of penetration that they're getting off on. Also, and I apologize for some of the outdated language in this. Remember this, (laughs) this book was from 1997. So some of the terms just aren't so like, they're a little bit tone deaf. There was a bar called Gay 90s. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So William Hagmeyer, he was the head of child abduction and serial killer unit of the FBI. That was like the the profiling unit. He said there was a tremendous amount of overkill. Those are the kinds of things you see sometimes in homosexual murders. This tremendous stabbing over and over. If Miglin is a total stranger, then Miglin reminds him of somebody else that he had a tremendous amount of anger toward. Or maybe Miglin isn't a total stranger. Hagmeyer also adds that the brutality could have been triggered by drug use, or maybe Andrew had just like watched a really sadistic movie. He said this could be like living out a fantasy from some movie or book that he's read. Ted Bundy used to do that with his victims. He dyed their hair, cut it in different ways, put different clothes on them because he was reenacting covers of detective magazines. Oh, I never knew that about him. Neither did I. Um, There was another FBI agent in the profiling unit who was in charge of, of Andrew's case, and he said, with the city of the size, with the city the size of Chicago, the chances of him just happening to go down that alley behind Miglin's townhouse and then seeing him in the garage, that's so remote. Mm-hmm. Here's something else that's interesting. So Lee Miglin had a son named Duke. Duke was like blonde, rich, handsome, exactly the kind of guy that Andrew would be hanging out with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also no confirmation that they ever knew each other, but There was one guy named Ron Williams who used to go out to dinner with Andrew. And he says that in 1994, Andrew told him that he had a business connection who was a rich, older investor in Chicago named Duke, which is weird. But you know how Andrew liked to lie and just kind of mix up names and change details here and there. Okay, but it could be nothing. It's but still when this guy, Ron Williams, heard that Lee Miglin was killed by Andrew, he was just like and that and that Lee had a son named Duke. He was like, whoa. And this was in Chicago. You know, there's no way he didn't know him. Right. It's just like things added up in the strangest way. Like they didn't 100 percent add up. But maybe that's why Andrew did that. You know, it was harder to keep up with his lies. Right. 
Another guy named Jack Schaefer said that he ran into the Miglins a few years back at an airport and they were waiting for Duke to join them. Duke showed up with a friend who made a great impression. When Jack was showed a picture of Andrew, he went, yeah, that's the guy I saw with Duke. What? So maybe Andrew knew Duke and was looking for him when he found Lee. Or like maybe he had met Lee through Duke and like maybe hung out with both of them. Like maybe they were both a part of this gay group. Who knows? This gay group. You know what I mean? Like their little fraternity of rich gay men. (laughs) Right. But like I said, they tried really hard to find a connection between Lee or Duke and Andrew and they couldn't find anything. At least nothing concrete. Like anything they did find were like, no, that that can be proven beyond reasonable doubt. So we're not going to we're not going to move with this. I feel like back then it was a lot harder to have like super great paper trails and like concrete evidence because people weren't texting. They weren't, you know, there wasn't social media. Right. It's That's a lot exactly. harder to find connections between people. When the profiler said if this was a random killing, then Lee Miglin reminds him of somebody he's angry with. What came to my mind was. What if this man is a surrogate for Norman Blanchard, who just disowned him and disinherited him? You know, the thing that gets me is that there's no defensive wounds. That's what makes me think that maybe this was a sexual thing. So I'm wondering if maybe it started off as sex or bondage that Lee Miglin consented to, and then Andrew pushed it. Right. I agree. That's exactly what I was thinking when I heard the bag and the fact that his feet were bound and there's not many defensive wounds unless he was able to like overpower him really quickly. It just doesn't make sense why Lee Miglin wouldn't fight at all. Every, everybody who knew him says he would have fought like it doesn't make sense. You know, mm. that's that's the one thing that makes me feel like it can't be random because why didn't Lee Miglin fight if this was just some random intruder, you know? Right. That's what makes me feel like they must have been in the middle of a sexual encounter that he consented to and he didn't know he was going to die. Yeah. Um, so Lee Miglin's wife, Marilyn, returned home from her trip when she found her house empty, but a few things were out of place. There was a half eaten pint of ice cream just left on the counter. And of course, the ham sitting on the desk. And Lee wasn't the kind of guy to leave things out like this. Also, their green Lexus was missing. So Marilyn got this really weird feeling that somebody else was in their house and something happened to Lee. So Andrew took off with Lee's green Lexus and he just left behind the red Jeep, just like not far from Lee Miglin's house. This would become like his signature, just leaving cars behind. Uh Now, the Lexus was equipped with a car phone, which, according to the records, was activated on May 4th, meaning either Andrew tried to use the phone or it activated when he turned the ignition on. So police began tracking the vehicle through the car phone and the fucking media released that information where Andrew just like heard it on the radio and then tried to destroy the phone. Oh, oh my God. On Friday, May 9th, a guy named Bill Reese, who worked in a cemetery, stopped to pick up mail on his way back from work. Andrew either saw him and followed him there or he just like happened upon the cemetery where he worked, which would have been kind of weird because it was like rural. Andrew shot and killed him. And this one really was just a crime of opportunity. He made him kneel down and then shot him in the head with Jeff's gun just so that he could steal his red Chevrolet uh, pickup truck. Andrew used this truck to drive to Florida. He abandoned the green Lexus and police quickly figured out that this was Andrew killing his fourth person in 12 days. Because Andrew, not just did he abandon the Lexus, he also left behind 
Lee Miglin's wallet and his credit cards, as well as a plastic garbage bag with one of Lee's shoes, which the other one was on Lee's body. What? I know. It's like he must have done this on purpose. He wasn't stupid, you know? So police kind of feel like he's leaving us breadcrumbs on purpose. Right. He also left two random photographs in the car. One was of Andrew and his friends at a party. And another one was with of him and his buddy Robbins just like posing in swimsuits. It was so weird. Like, why like he's, like, he's like telling on it's like he's playing a game or something. He wants them exactly. He wants them to know, like, look at me leaving behind another car and you still haven't caught me. And you still don't know where I'm going. It's like he wants them to know this was fucking me. So I guess maybe because he knew that the car phone was allowing him to be tracked, maybe he just like made it a mission to find somebody that he could easily take their vehicle. Yeah. He must have also known that when they were tracking the car phone, like there was no escaping that. He was like, fuck it. Might as well own it. Andrew was very much at large now and people were scared. Bill was killed in such a remote area that people were worried they couldn't even hide. And now everybody in the gay community, like anybody who's ever met Andrew or ever been his roommate or ever gone out with him are like, oh my God, am I next? Like, I really, like, they're trying to remember, like, did I say something rude to him? Like, what did I last say to him? (laughs) Oh God, I can't even imagine. The police were focusing their search on the red truck that he was driving. They questioned a few people, but they like didn't want to hear anything that anybody had to say. They would ask people, where would Andrew go next or who would be his next victim? Multiple people tried to tell them things about Andrew's personality and they refused to listen, even saying that being gay was irrelevant to the case. But like, is it? (laughs) It's like his total victimology, you know, even the profiling unit tried to give insight to police and the rest of the FBI didn't want to listen. One FBI agent said. We already knew who Kunanan was. We interviewed hundreds of his associates. We don't need the profiling unit to tell us he's going to go hang out in gay bars. They really didn't give the profiling unit any credit, which, again, it reminds me a lot of Criminal Minds when the BAU comes in to help with the murder and the local police are like, oh, why don't we need them? We can do this without them. Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) They just don't want anybody's help. The FBI's refusal to talk about Andrew's homosexuality was really problematic. There was a general unease among law enforcement when working with with homosexuals. One investigator said, we used to call them phagocytes. What? Oh, like instead of homicide, it's phagocyte. That's Uh insane. A coordinator of the Minneapolis Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project said 75% of gays would not call law enforcement regarding crimes. They may not be out. They may feel shame or guilt. There's also a lot of distrust in a history of slow movement and a failure to respond. Right. I mean, seriously, like when they realize that they're gay, they're like, ah, oh, don't want to be messing with that. Exactly. So why would you why would you seek help from someone like that? Another activist talked about how this could be a lifestyle issue. For the most part, gay people are able to move through the mainstream, but there are segments of the community who just aren't. Some people have had bad experiences with straight people and don't want to be involved with them. Some grew up in small towns where it's a huge stigma. And so the only way to have contact with other gay people is to have illicit sex in bars or parks and in the dark. So they learned that this was the only way they could be gay. And cops were just not allies to this community. After Bill Reese's body was found, reporter Maureen Orth caught wind of the story. She sensed that the story might be worth reporting on, and she got the green light from Vanity Fair to begin reporting. Over the next few weeks, she set out to learn everything she could about Andrew Kunata. On May 12th, police reached out to Andrew's mother, Mary Ann. She told them that she hadn't heard from him in over two years. 
Andrew started staying at a hotel in Miami Beach, Florida, where he paid $29 per night in cash. On May 13th, Philip Merrill, remember that was uh, Liz Cody's fiance and Liz was Andrew's best friend. So they called the FBI to volunteer their help in finding Andrew. According to Philip, the FBI asked him, where do you think he'll go and who do you think he'll get in touch with? Philip said Versace. He was sure of it. He also mentioned a guy named Harry DeWilt. He was a socialite that was hanging out with Versace on the night that Andrew supposedly met them. But the police didn't include this in their report, and they refused to comment on that. Philip told them to think of places that could appear on Robin Leach, uh, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. He said that these were the types of places where Andrew would go. He also told them to warn the owners of 7-Elevens to look out for anybody shopping for Fritos and milk. Apparently, Andrew liked to eat Fritos and drink milk, and he would sometimes go a day and a half without eating any real food in between. Ew. An absolute psychopath. That's why he was, I'm just wondering how he's fat on meth, but I feel like Fritos (laughs) and milk will do it. (laughs) You know what, though? They talk about that, too, how, like, yeah, meth typically is something that people lose weight on, but if you use it enough, you'll you'll eat, you know? Oh, my God. I imagine it's kind of like how if you smoke enough weed, it just doesn't make you tired anymore. Right. Or like give you the munchies or make you feel high. (laughs) Yeah, I wish it didn't give me the munchies. (laughs) In early June, the police questioned Norman Blanchard about Andrew Cunanan and his whereabouts. I can imagine the conversation going something like, so Mr. Blanchard, what can you tell us about Andrew Cunanan? And then Norman was probably like, well, he's an Arabian prince who is married to a Jewish princess and owns a plantation in Manila. Because remember, Andrew didn't tell him any of the true story. (laughs) (laughs) He's a Jewish prince. Yeah, he used to tell people all this random shit, remember? But yeah, he lived in Manila in a plantation. What are you talking about? Uh, Seriously, though, he did tell the police like he didn't know. He didn't really have a good idea, but he had a hunch that Andrew might be in Miami, particularly the South Beach area. He had no specific information about why he thought this, but he said that Andrew told him a while back that he had visited there before and Blanchard just thought that it'd be the logical place for Andrew to blend in. Mm. But Blanchard's suggestion doesn't show up in FBI files either. Aside from Phil Merrill and Norman Blanchard, there were two other friends of Andrew's who also said that they mentioned to FBI that Andrew had met Gianni Versace, but this was not noted in their police reports either. Did they think that it was just like so unlikely? I don't know. I really don't know. The family and and the police are like, oh, he didn't know him. But all of his friends are like, oh, he's probably at Versace's. Even if he hadn't met him, he told people he met him. You know, he talked about it a lot. And the police were just like, uh. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds too gay for me. So Versace's name literally didn't appear in the FBI files at all before he died, before he died. The FBI made a flyer with Andrew's face on it, and 3,000 copies were supposed to be made and distributed in the Miami area, but they weren't. The cops claimed that they were passed out, but realistically, there was only one flyer up, and it was like in the FBI station, which is like, yeah, because that's where I go. To Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and even though the police said that they were handed out, like, Everybody, all the local police in the bars, everybody was like, no, I never heard this. So Andrew literally was able to hide in plain sight for two months. And even though they were supposedly looking for the red truck, it was parked right outside of the hotel that he was staying at. They just didn't find it. I don't know what the fuck they were doing to find it. On Friday, July 11th, Andrew went to a pawn shop and he pawned a stolen item using his real name with his real ID, despite knowing that police routinely reviewed pawn shop records. Narcissism. 
seriously. I think this was intentional too, him leaving, leaving more breadcrumbs. And also, I believe that the item that he pawned was like a rare gold coin that, that belonged to Lee Miglin. So the pawn shop owner recognized his name and faxed over the information to the police department. But the detective who was in charge of that took three days off work. Oh, my God. So remember, this was July 11th. On Sunday, July 13th, Andrew retreated to his hotel where the reception clerk told him your rent is due today. He told her he was tired and asked if he could pay in the morning to avoid having to go back up to his room and then coming back out. And she told him that was fine since he had been staying there for like two months already. She didn't really think anything of it. That evening around 9 p.m., he slipped back out and he went and got himself a sub sandwich and somebody actually recognized him and called the police. By this point, Andrew was on America's Most Wanted. So he called the police and they were like, can you describe him? And he was like, uh, yeah, he's the guy on America's Most Wanted, the gay guy who killed his lover and like three other people. And they apparently had no idea who he was talking about. What? Yeah. Nonetheless, police showed up within minutes, but by then, Andrew was gone. Andrew was sighted that same evening at a dance club called Twist, where he danced one dance with a hairdresser named Brad, who he told his name was Andy. On the dance floor, Andrew was all over Brad. When Brad asked him, what do you do for a living? He went, I'm a serial killer. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm an investment banker. <laughs> And then he disappeared into the crowd. The rest of the night, Andrew was trying to act fabulous. He was chatting people up. It was clear that he didn't know anybody. He was dressed nicely, but at the bar, he just ordered water and he bummed a cigarette. He probably didn't have any money. Yep. In the morning, the clerk at the hotel called Andrew at 10 a.m. And Andrew answered the phone and said that he'd be down in 10 minutes to pay the rent. But at about 1030, the clerk realized that Andrew had actually skipped out the back gate. Andrew had also shaved his head before leaving. I don't know what Andrew did or where he stayed on Sunday, but on Monday, he was spotted asking people for a dollar at a pizza place. And then later that night, he was supposedly spotted at another club pretending that he lived in a luxurious building on the beach. <sighs> on Tuesday morning, July 15th, Andrew was up bright and early, and so was Gianni Versace. Oh, no. Versace decided to take a walk to get some magazines from a news cafe just three blocks from his villa and walked back home around 8.40 a.m., Versace walked back up to his iron gate and put his key into the lock. A neighbor glanced back at him and he calmly smiled at her. Then Andrew rapidly walked up the steps and held out his hand holding Jeff Trail's gun and shot Versace at close range. He was hit in the neck right behind his left ear and cheek. The first bullet cracked the base of his brain, fracturing his skull and tearing the upper part of his spinal cord and neck. Oh, God. The bullet flew out of his neck and hit one of the metal railings of the gate before breaking apart. One of the bullet fragments hit a dove, which instantly died and fell on its back in front of the mansion. What a scene. Yeah. And this actually led a lot of people to believe that this was like a like a mob killing. After the first shot, Versace turned his head slightly when he was hit from an even closer range with a second bullet through the right side of his face next to his nose. It lodged in his head and cracked the top of his skull. He immediately slumped to the steps in a pool of blood. His neighbor was still standing there in shock. Andrew calmly walked away. Versace's partner, Antonio D'Amico, heard the shot, so he ran outside. He was the first to find Versace, and he cried, no, no, no. He was waiting for a friend to come hang out with him. His name was Lazaro Quintana. So he got there right as this scene is happening, and he looked at the neighbor and demanded, what happened? She was speechless and just pointed down the street at Andrew, who was now halfway down the block. So Quintana ran after him, shouting, you bastard. He chased him into an alley when Andrew turned around and pointed a gun at him. So Quintana gave up the chase. 
A couple of garbage men witnessed the pursuit and told police that they believed they saw him running towards a parking garage. So the cops on patrol checked the garage just after or just before 9 a.m. At 9.12, a pile of sweaty clothes was found on the on the third level of the garage outside the passenger door of a red Chevy pickup. It was a black tank top under a gray T-shirt, a pair of boxer shorts and a black backpack, which was all the things Andrew was wearing. The truck's license plate was from South Carolina, but when they ran a check on it, they found nothing. Apparently, the plates hadn't been reported stolen, which is weird since the police had supposedly been been looking for this truck for weeks. Oh, just another thing to add to the list of things that they're not doing. For real. (laughs) At 917, an officer radioed that he saw someone on the roof wearing a red shirt and glasses. He said he might be part of the parking crew. He just peered over the edge. He's just walking around. Dark skin, Latin male. He looks like security for the building wearing one of those kinds of shirts. He was going from one corner of the roof to the other, just peering over the edges. But when one of the police officers made it up to the roof about five minutes later, Andrew disappeared. A bloodhound following Andrew's scent went directly to these four corners. So we're confident that this was indeed Andrew. I wonder if he like stole an employee shirt or something or or if he was just like saving this shirt in his backpack or what. Right. And how did he how did he escape so easily when you have to go down? That's crazy. I don't know exactly what he did. Like, I don't know how he disappeared either. He's on the roof. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he must have like jumped down or something. Versace lost consciousness and went brain dead immediately, though his heart was kept beating by paramedics who rushed into the hospital. No. The police showed up at his house, bumbling all over each other, and they basically turned the home into their command post, which made the staff at the house really uncomfortable. Like Antonio D'Amico, who was Versace's partner, he was devastated and he just wanted to go and be with Gianni. He was told, there's nothing you can do at the hospital. You're much more vital to the investigation. That pisses me off because it's like he's not a legitimate partner. It it makes me really angry, too. He's not a fucking cop. Like, do your job and let him mourn. Anyway, D'Amico was like, fuck this. And he insisted on going. So the police had no choice but to remove the police tape and move their cars and let him out. Later that morning, the police finally checked the VIN of the red truck and were like, hot damn, that's the truck Kunanen was in. And then they finally realized that Kunanen was indeed Versace's killer. Around 1 p.m. that same day, two police officers walked by a car belonging to, to a Miami FBI agent named Keith Evans. And in the back seat, they saw boxes and boxes filled with flyers showing Andrew Kunanen's face. 3,000 flyers in his back seat for who knows how long. I just, why? Why didn't you put them up? On Wednesday, July 16th, the pawn shop owner who had faxed the police when Andrew came in to pawn something, she called the police to follow up. Remember, the detective who was in charge of that had taken three days off and he got back the same day that Versace was shot. So now again, Miami PD is like, (laughs) how embarrassing for us. They had no leads for Andrew at this point, except maybe one. There was a guy who owned a sailboat and he found that his boat had been broken into and In it, he found old pita bread and newspapers opened up to stories about the Versace killing. And then he saw a man who looked like Andrew sitting on a bench across the street, reading a navigational book that he realized was his own navigational book that was stolen from his boat. That's so creepy. And he's just sitting like across the street from this boat. Like, I'm just going to go across the street and read this book. I still police checked the boat and they were unable to find any forensic evidence, but they did find a red polo shirt. The FBI followed a lead to a hotel and they were allowed to search rooms only after knocking and announcing who they were. They got to one room where they heard no response. So they busted in and started shooting. It ended up being a family who was sound asleep and were killed in their sleep by the police. 
Oh my god. I hope they they put those police in prison. Doubtful though. Doubtful. And it was all in vain because Andrew was not in the hotel. That's horrible. You can't even go on vacation with your family. Andrew's parents were contacted. Marianne was taken to San Francisco where they hid her in a witness protection program. Pete Cunanan was approached in the Philippines by a politician and a camera crew. Pete completely denied that Andrew was homosexual or remotely capable of killing Grisachi. He also says that he was unable to mourn his son without a news crew ambushing him. During the investigation, a volunteer counselor named Mike Dudley came forward and said that in February, so like five months earlier, just a couple months before the killing started, Andrew went to this volunteer counselor and told him that he was worried that he had contracted the AIDS virus. He described Andrew as nervous, partied out, and said that Andrew had said, if I find out who did this to me, I'm going to get them. Hmm. So some people believe that this might have like sparked everything. Right. Like it's said that maybe this sparked like an anger in gay men in the gay community or towards the gay community. Right. By July 23rd, Andrew was still missing. A guy named Fernando Carrera and his wife went to check on a houseboat that he managed. He looked after a number of houseboat properties and they noticed that one of the locks was stuck or broken and the other lock was unlatched. They went inside and they looked around and he said to his wife, somebody's been here. They found a little bed, like, like just like cushions and blankets on the floor, like a little handmade bed. And a chair was set up kind of like as a barricade. And then they saw two sandals and realized somebody might be in here right now. Oh, that's creepy. Fernando keeps a handgun in his waistband. So he pulled it out to conduct the search. And then a loud shot rang out in the second floor master bedroom. It was really loud. So Fernando thought that somebody had shot at him and missed. So he and his wife ran outside and crouched in some bushes and they watched at the front door. And he said he was too nervous to dial 911. So he called his son and his his son called the police. The police arrived within four minutes. They had no idea whether this man in the houseboat was Andrew Cunanan, but they were taking no chances this time. So they closed the traffic off on that street. At 8 p.m., they sprayed pepper and CS gas into the houseboat. And then they went in and at about 9.30 p.m., they found the body that they positively identified to be Andrew Cunanan. His eyes were wide open and he now had a few days worth of beard. He had Jeff Trail's gun in his hand and he appeared to have shot himself in the head. Andrew's autopsy revealed that he did not actually have HIV or AIDS. Oh, my gosh. I mean, not that that would make it any better, but it just I think it kind of adds to his like he has like the psychosis, you know, like 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 he jumped to a conclusion. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like when you Google your illness, you know, and you see all these symptoms, maybe he started feeling some symptoms and he like blew them up in his mind or something. Right. After Andrew's death, Pete Cunanan returned to the United States for the first time since 1988. He told the Chicago Tribune correspondent, my son is not like that. He is innocent. He is not a homosexual. He had a Catholic upbringing and was an altar boy. I don't believe he did what the American police say he did. Sure. Pete told the L.A. Times that he was going to find the truth regarding his son's suicide and killing spree. And he was going to make a movie about this. He hoped to make plenty of money with this movie that he would donate to a church, a chapel or a temple in his son's memory. Sure. Sure. Doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> Pete at this point has a new Filipino wife and he spends his days scheming to find buried treasure that he believes the Japanese left behind in the Philippines during World War II. 
He is a follower of Claire Prophet, who is a leader of a cult whose followers took to underground survivalist shelters in the hills of Montana to prepare for doomsday, which they believed would happen in 1990. And of course, it did not happen. So this cult got smaller and smaller, but it still kind of exists in little subgroups around the country. Hmm. All of Andrew's friends, loved ones, former roommates, his parents, everybody, they were all offered money for pictures of Andrew and further information about him. Pete completely sold out, of course, took as much money as he could. And donated it, right? Straight to charity. Oh, sure. Sure. (laughs) The trails and the Madsons avoided the media altogether, but they were hardly left alone. Rebecca Reese, who was the wife of the victim, Bill Reese, she went into seclusion after her husband's death. She made one appearance on camera while Andrew was still at large, mostly because she wanted people to know that her husband was not gay. Some of Andrew's friends were outed because of their connections to him. Some were even disinherited because of it. Oh, that's sad. All because their parents found out that they were gay. Not even because of the connection to Kunanan, because they're gay. Right, exactly. Soon after the manhunt ended, the FBI called representatives of a group of gay organizations for a meeting and told them, we need to foster a better relationship because if you're being preyed upon by killers or victimized, we need to help. The case prompted an outpouring in the gay press about the way gay crime is reported. The Versace family continues to insist that Gianni had no connection to Andrew Cunanan and they're angered that he wasn't caught sooner. Prior to his death, Gianni Versace had actually survived a rare ear cancer as well as a bone marrow cancer in his cheek. He became really sick and depressed at one point while on chemotherapy before beating cancer. If not for Andrew Cunanan, he may have gone on to live many more years. That's so sad, as would everyone else have if they didn't pass cross paths with him. Yeah, so that's the story of Andrew Cunanan and how he killed Gianni Versace, Bill Reese, Lee Miglin, David Madsen, and Jeff Trails. All right. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember that you can find episode notes on brokenlimelight.com along with some pictures and videos, things like that. Don't forget, you can also sign up to our Patreon to get early access to our episodes. You get access to the episodes two days early for just $1 a month. And while we're at it, let me tell you about our next episode. So maybe it'll motivate you a little. In fact, we're going to have Summer tell you. Our next episode is going to be about Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. That's right. The pudding pop man. The pudding pop man. <laughs> That's how he talks. All right, guys. Thank you again for sticking it out with us. We'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. And I recorded this time. Yay. All right. Wait, that's only four. And Gil, wait, what's his oh, name? And Lee Miglin. Yep, Gil. <laughs> Lee Miglin. I know, I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> Good try though. <laughs> Gil! And it was like 30 yards of a walk. It was like a 30-yard walk. Sorry, I said that like in Spanish. <laughs> Ouch. I got a boo-boo. <laughs> You're so cute. Tomorrow I'm going to kill myself. Better go dancing tonight. Ready? Our next. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Bill Cosby and I like to rape women with my jello pudding pops and doopadoo. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? (laughs) What did your daughter say about him again? She was like, he just sounds like 
Scooby-Doo beatboxing. <laughs> and we looked at her like, this is not even wrong. <laughs> it's weirdly accurate. Bark box, bark box, bark box, bark box. You guys know my dogs, Jude and Eleanor Rigby. Well, we just started getting in bark box, and I'm telling you, your dogs will love you. No more are they angry at the mailman. No more, I say. It's like a box of dog joy that's delivered every month, and each box tells a different story with different themed toys, treats, and photo-worthy props. Typically, what we get in each box is a couple of toys, a couple of treats, and a chew, but you can actually tailor-fit your box to fit your dog's needs. Guys, I'm telling you, your dogs will love you, even more than they already do. So try it out, and if you use my link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is a $35 value. So just head to BarkBox.com slash BrokenLimelight and get started on your first BarkBox today. BarkBox! 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 Nailed it, Jude.